Welcome to Talking Health Tech. My name is Peter Birch. This is a podcast of conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology. Here with me today is Dr. Ginny Mansberg. Dr. Ginny's no stranger to Australian television and other media. She's a Sydney GP and has been on shows like Embarrassing Bodies Down Under on Channel 9, Sunrise in the Morning Show on Channel 7, Things You Can't Talk About on TV, on YouTube and Audible, as well as featuring a bunch of magazines, radio shows and podcasts. In addition to this and a heap of other responsibilities, Dr. Ginny is also a successful businesswoman with her own cosmeceutical and beauty-related business. Dr. Ginny's here today via live stream video and the recording of this will be converted into a podcast episode of Talking Health Tech. Attendees who are here live today will also have the chance to chat, ask questions, participate in polls, and generally shape the way the conversation goes. Ginny, how are you? I'm good. How are you going? Pretty good. Pretty good. Excellent. It's a shame that we're not in person as the plan was meant to be many months ago when we organized it, but I guess the the powers of tech allow us to do something a bit more edgy and collaborative and record it live with other people joining in. So thank you for... I put my jacket on so that I look profesh on the top. But don't worry, I'm in sweats on the bottom, <laughs> as I would have been in the studio. <laughs> nice, one. nice one. My attire is pretty much the same as what my attire has been for, for quite a while. So <laughs> that's good. All, all transparency. And uh, the, the attendees that we've got that have joined in live to this episode. So we've got people who have attended live to the recording. And also this audio will be used for a podcast episode in about a week or two. So there's people that might be listening at home in any kind of business attire, which is all suitable at the moment. Now, just a reminder to anyone that's here, there is a chat section over on the right. There are some polls that are already up that you're there to answer, which will shape the way we have this conversation. Already some of those uh, questions of the polls have gone up and some of those are, what's your side hustle status? And about... half 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 people say they have one and then the other half say they're thinking of starting one and then a couple are saying they don't want one I know that's more than a bit more than 100% but that's how it's, it's going live what's your employment status there's six people at the moment have said that they're in full-time employment there's there's a few people impacted by or displaced by COVID there's some full-time students some people saying it's complicated which I think for a lot of people that's certainly the case right now and there'll be a couple more polls that we'll post a bit later on in the episode too which shape how it goes so keep an eye out for them if you're attending also if you're really keen you can put your hand up and say you want to come up on stage in inverted commas and ask a question where that's will we'll open up your your camera and audio and you can ask any question that you like and feel free to be in any attire that you feel comfortable in uh, coming on as well so Ginny thanks so much for coming on again you're a GP turn TV doctor turn entrepreneur and, and a mum of like a hundred kids and what are some of the key milestones and major breaks in your career that have that have really defined who you are today so nothing has happened by any design everything has been a complete um, and utter accident I was always in the right place at the right time so I was doing general practice and I had little kids and it just was quite difficult to do input based work so where you had to be there to you know and and trying to get kids childcare was just impossible so I did a journalism degree and that led to my writing a book because somebody said, hey, if you ever want to write a book, I'll help you get it published. So then I had to think of something to write. And so it went to this small time publisher. I think it sold maybe five copies, all of them to my mother. But one of them happened to land um, on the desk of the incoming editor of the Women's Health magazine. And uh, they were looking for a doctor. I was at the top of the pile on, on a book. And so they rang my publisher, got my details. And at that moment, as uh, Women's Health magazine got started, it, that Pacific magazine got bought by Network 7, so I became an employee of 7. They already had a doctor, but he was an older bloke, and every time they wanted to talk about the pill or breastfeeding or something like that, they'd hoik out the only female doctor they had in the stable, which was me. And that kind of led to a bit of a career in medicine. I fell over and ended up in federal politics, which is just another bizarre little <laughs> diversion that I had for about a year. and then. Kept going with my general practice and then this uh, trip into entrepreneurship was again, it was a result of a silly conversation. So it wasn't anything that I had a burning desire to work for myself or have my own business. That was more Daniel, my husband, but here we are. That's probably the biggest thing that I do now. Yeah, wow. It's interesting how you hear so many stories of people who start off, this is the way, this is the route that I'm going and then it so happens that like on 
one turn of event to another turn of events, which which can be kind of related when you look back at them over time, but at, the, at that point in time, make no sense whatsoever, kind of shape uh, what you do. So tell us a, a bit more about what you're doing right now and, and, and that particular business that you mentioned with Daniel. So the, my, the, my entrepreneurial hat, that is a company called ESK. So that's Evidence Skin. So it's a cosmeceutical skincare range. It started out life, it's a bigger sister, started out life as Aurora Care. So Aurora Care was a um, cosmeceutical skincare company where we private labeled for plastic surgeons and dermatologists who otherwise would have done that, but didn't have the time or the bandwidth to do it. So why did it happen? Um, because you think that is the most crowded market we could ever have gone into. It's just that there was a gap in the market between the published evidence in peer review journals, um, which doctors love. We love the peer review process and randomised controlled trials, and we love the cleanliness of a, a, a published journal. Um, so we had lots of data about what worked in terms of ageing and skincare, but there was practically nothing on the market. And this was sort of coming up again and again and again. Every time I'd do a Sunrise segment on what really works in anti-aging skincare, I would say, this is what you need. And then, you know, I'd get 300 emails saying, so what should I actually use? And I would say, well, I don't really, can't find anything, absolutely nothing um, on the market. And when we looked at path to market, when you try and launch a skincare range, if you're going to go to someone like David Jones, they're going to ask you for your media plan. And roughly 30% of gross revenue should be devoted to PR and marketing. And that was the kind of money we just didn't have. We could say we had evidence, but everybody says they have evidence. Just because they don't doesn't mean anything. But if we went to plastic surgeons and dermatologists and said, here, we've got an evidence-based skincare range, they'd all go, oh, yes, this is fantastic. And then we would stick their own label on it. We'd do the, all their collateral, their marketing collateral. We'd, do, uh, we'd hire a graphic designer and get it all designed up for them. And uh, Daniel sat down and he sort of, created a spreadsheet and worked out that this was sort of scalable up to about 75 brands. Mm. And then when we hit 50 brands, that's when we launched our own company, which is the ESK, which is the direct-to-consumer arm, um, which now by revenue eclipses, you know, it's so much bigger than Aurora Care, even with the 75 brands that we've ended up with. But it's we needed the capital that we raised through running Aurora Care. And we also needed the experience and there, there's just so many learnings that you get from launching a small company that you can use to leverage that into a larger company. Yeah, totally. And so I want to come back to all of that, but just to step back one as well. So you're also a family GP and you, you very much know about the, the, the job and the difficulties of that on a day-to-day, even without the current environment of, of COVID-19. Yeah. And I mean, obviously the stakes have been raised even more now with all of that going on, there's going to be some doctors that, that may be attending now or listening to this on a podcast that, that might be um, feeling burnt out. They, they might be finding it hard to get the energy to do what they feel they need to do. I find a lot of GPs just find they, they need to do something, not because they want to, and that's just something innate in them. Like for you as a fellow GP, what advice would you be giving to them right about now? Look, everyone's different and I don't want to, I mean, my journey might be very different for everybody to everybody else's, but I really love my work and I love my patients and I find being a GP is a real privilege and I would never give it up. Mm. My great mentor in general practice was the late Dr. Raymond Seidler and he uh, worked in King's Cross in Sydney treating mainly drug and alcohol addicts. And when I first went to work for him, I was quite fearful about um, the kinds of patients I'd be meeting. And the first thing he said to me is that there are no success and failure, there are just degrees of success and that we are there to help the patient on their journey, but you take the small wins when they come. So for example, if a heroin addict had not had any contact with any family members for 18 months, was using sharing needles in an unsafe way, putting themselves at risk of various injecting drug use problems, if they were at risk of problems from the law, if they had homelessness issues, if you could just get them to use a small enough amount of heroin and use enough methadone so that they called their kids, and maybe got in contact with the kids' foster parents and maybe had some contact with them and maybe didn't have homelessness, weren't couch surfing or sleeping on the street, maybe if they weren't at risk of incarceration all the time, Mm. that would be a huge win. And sure, they're going to fall off the horse again, but maybe they'll get back onto methadone again in six weeks instead of in a year and a half, which is what they did last time. And they haven't picked up hepatitis B or they haven't picked up HIV. That is a win. And once you can spot your wins, 
and you start changing your frame of focus to look for wins in everybody, then every day is an opportunity to spot wins and to celebrate those with the people that you help. Um, it's very easy to see problems. They're everywhere, but you just have to change your lens and then you'll probably be happy for the rest of your life. It's pretty profound advice that's that's relevant in the GP space and also to anyone. And no doubt, I'm going to guess that that was kind of, you know, that, that's been driving you in everything you do. So back on to to, to ESK for a second. So you're talking about, you know, your business that you've built up and, and it's essentially started as something in your in your lounge room. Um, what are some of the biggest learnings that you've had from that experience in growing that business? So many. I, I think every person who starts a business, if they tell you that it, um, they just went from strength to strength to strength, um, either they're dreaming or, um, but uh, what do I tell you? It takes uh, more money than you think to start a business. It takes more time than you think to start a business. Don't buy bottles from China. The samples that you get have got nothing to do with what you actually get delivered. We had to turf a whole lot of product because we put them into Chinese bottles, never again. We learnt um, how to speak to customers and to really be customer centric. I think everybody talks about that and what does it mean specifically for us when we were going to speak to different doctors, plastic surgeons and dermatologists. There would be some who, if you listen to them, what they wanted to know is how much money am I going to make out of this project? If I take on skincare, what will I make out of it? There would be others who, if you talked about the money, would be utterly offended and, and and literally you would chase them away because they don't want to talk about money. They want to talk about delivering amazing outcomes based on science to their patients. So if you can start every conversation truly listening to people, then you will have, I think, a better experience um, in terms of sales. And at the end of the day, we are all, we are all trying to sell. But there's just so many learnings. Uh, how to do government rebates, how to run, you know, apply for overseas grants, um, in, employment contracts. Every, we've learned so much. Sounds like you've got to, you've got to learn by doing, you know, like in, in those type of yeah. Um, situations. Yeah, totally. Um, and, and if you're going to fail, fail fast and fail small, ideally. <laughs> fail as small as possible. But hey, look. Little amount of money on the line as possible. Yeah, totally. I'm going to post another poll for people to fill out, which is if you haven't started something entrepreneurial and you want to, then what's stopping you? I'll let people start answering that while we kind of shift gears of the conversation into more about, you know, helping other people getting the, you know, putting through people through that lens of, of starting up something on their own. And I guess it's all like with COVID and everything, like, I've got a massive hole in my jumper. I just realized that's embarrassing. That's more embarrassing to make note of it on the focus Peter so like it's, it's like in in putting it through the lens of starting up something particularly with COVID some people you know like they mentioned at the start of this as well the attendees some have been impact displaced by COVID some are unemployed and and many people are kind of thinking of doing their own kind of thing so already people are saying that you know a lot of the mix is not so the, the, the potential answers people have either is you know there's no time to do it or there's no money to launch it or there's no idea what they want to do or it's too risky a lot of people surprisingly are saying well not surprising a lot of people are saying no idea what to do and and more people are saying they have not the money to launch it so i think that'll kind of flavor some of the conversations that we'll have going through so you know just so Ginny, you know let, let's say in getting started with something here, let, let's say I've come up with a, a business idea. Or I've actually I've got, got the idea and I want to run my own show. I've got that feeling where I don't want to be employed or I have no choice where, you know, there's no jobs at the moment and I feel like I'm just going to have to go out and make, make my own money. Where do you start in coming up with something as like taking an idea and then making it into a business? Ideas don't grow on trees and they're quite difficult to come up with unless you change your lens. So in our case, we spotted um, a gap in the market. So what we saw was there was a great demand for cosmeceutical skincare and there was no um, skincare in the market that was actually meeting that demand or that, that actual um, evidence base. And we thought people are no longer going to be lured by fluff and a pretty celebrity. They're actually, we've got a lot of skin intellectuals out there who actually want to understand the science behind it and actually be treated with respect rather than being treated like an idiot. Yeah. Everybody on this uh, webinar or everyone who's listening to us today um, knows their own part of the market really well. And you've thought about problems, but you haven't thought about them from the lens of what are the opportunities inside those problems. Because once you focus on, the, on those problems and work out what would help me in my business solve that problem, 
you're halfway there because don't wait for a flash of inspiration to come to you. It's not, it's not going to happen. I think you also need to be prepared to do some sacrificing. And I think I'm hearing that, that taking that risk is really scary. And I completely get that. Mm. When we wanted to start a business, so Daniel got um, retrenched from his job and he was in, so Daniel's my husband, and he was in corporate finance, which is not a a job that promotes creativity and agility and um, thinking about new businesses and that sort of thing. So, and being in corporate finance, that's a pretty well-served market. It's not easy to find gaps in that market. So we started talking about it together. And what he said was he wanted um, a low capital requirement to get going. So he didn't want to have to be spending um, $100 million. He wanted reasonable margins um, in either the service or the product he was going to look at. He didn't want to have to scale to start making a profit because scaling is where you start to having to invest a lot of money. He didn't want a cyclical business. So he wanted something that was going to be fairly perennial and he wanted high barriers to entry. Now, if you think about barriers to entry, in our case, our star ingredient is one called retinol or retinol to hide. And that, you can get that from China. We chose not to get it from China. We decided to get it from Europe. That needs to be, well, it's about uh, $30,000 a kilo, um, which is a high barrier to entry. It also needs to be transported from the uh, factory in Europe to the factory in Australia at about minus 20 degrees Celsius without breaking the cold chain. Hmm. You also need a particular license to import it into Australia, which takes about a year to get. So we thought that's a great barrier to entry for just that one um, alone. There were some other barriers to entry, but they were the sorts of things that were requirements for us and skincare really fit that bill really nicely for us. For everybody else, once you have the idea, you've got to think about the metrics that could make it work as a business they were ours. I think everybody's would be different. But when you are at work, start spotting problems because there are problems everywhere and that's where the opportunities lie in solutions. Mm, totally. That is great that you've done something with your partner and, and that's how many of these kind of things start up. And I know a lot of people who have like closet aspirations where they don't really want to raise it with their partner just for fear of either being told it's a silly idea or you should focus on your job or it's just completely misaligned. You know, they're great partners for other reasons other than aspirational business ideas. Can I ask how you guys came up with doing that together or if there's any kind of thoughts on how someone who might be wanting to have that conversation with their partner but hasn't done that yet? Well, especially because every business requires some sort of capital. I mean, unless you are thinking of being um, a yoga instructor and you currently don't have a a job so there's no opportunity costs for launching you know a yoga class and you can get a free website and and off to the races mostly you're going to need some capital and if you have a team that is going to require both of you to decide together how to access that capital and for a lot of us that's dipping into our mortgage and so that needs a joint uh, decision you also need one person to keep the lights on so you need one person to have a job that brings in the income that allows the other person to to mm. actually um, go off and pursue that dream. I think if you're not both on the same page, that will put strain on a relationship. So right. I think ideally it's something that you would do together so that you're both invested in the success of that project. Totally. Thinking about family and, and keeping on that, I know a lot of very capable mums and dads, I mean, mostly mums who are like, have got some amazing business ideas, but they decide not to go after it because they want to focus on the family and, and that comes from an amazing loving place. But I know others that they, they get down about that or they start to almost create a sense of not regret, but at least that nagging kind of feeling of, oh, well, if I, if not for the family or the kids, then I would have done this thing and, and they don't want to think about it like that. So it's kind of just, you know, gets buried away and you don't really think about it. So you've got kids and that and, and like, what was your kind of, you know, journey with all of that? And do you have anything that you would have done differently when it comes to the business and family? Not really. I mean, my kids are much older. So in fact, the reason, one of the reasons we could do it was we, one of my sons went traveling. He finished his uh, matriculation from high school and he went traveling for a year and that gave us a spare room. We basically, there were like 10,000 bottles in there. We ran printers in there. It basically became a, a factory in that, in that room before we went out and got our first um, warehouse. So there was no impost on the kids. But I think for a lot of parents who are taking some time out to spend with their children, 
a lot of the time when you're not in that day-to-day grind of a job, you are liberated um, of that sort of narrow thinking that comes around um, employment and you can actually think about things more broadly. You've got the time to sit online and actually explore what your competition or what your would-be competition is like, explore other barriers to entry, like what are the regulatory issues you might come up against, do you need licensing, Uh, we all need insurance. Every time you start a new business, you're going to need to have some sort of insurance. What are those things and get your ducks lined up quite well? And that's often a really good time because there are no opportunity costs for stepping out of the workforce because um, you're out of the workforce anyway. So I actually think that is a really perfect time to, to start a new business. That works well. And then if I think as a parent, you might think, well, I, I, I might not pursue this because it's probably going to fail. The statistics say that most businesses fail in the first 12 months. And I get things that remind me of that so often depends on, you know, what your, again, what your lens is. Even, even for me with a family, I think, well, if I was in my twenties and then if, if it's just me, it's like, if this thing fails, it's like, great. I love two minute noodles. Like, you know, let's, let's make it happen. But if like now you've got kids and you think of the house and you think of all your debt and you think of all the other things that you need to take into consideration, not many people want to put their families at risk. Like how do you, how do you figure that tricky one out? And when you've got little kids, you're biologically primed to be a little bit more risk averse mm. and just keep a nest under your baby birds and, and that's completely fine. It might not work for you, but I think that the thing that I would say is this is where you collaborate with your partner. And for me, I met Daniel and he, I think for 10, 15 years, been thinking about his own business, something that he could have and, and nothing had ever worked. And I think it was getting retrenched, to be honest, where he just didn't have anything else to do and he was being put with outplacement services and looking at you know going back into a corporate job and he said I think I'd rather eat my own vomit than do that but it felt really good as a couple to for him to have wings uh, for me to put air under his wings to do something that I knew he would be good at the risk was I had to keep the lights on I had to support us for quite a few years until this thing and and we couldn't both work in it full time it could only be him our 10th employee just started today uh, full-time and and I could go in there full-time if I wanted to I just there's there's not a particularly important role I'm more hovering around the outside like a pigeon shitting all over everything but yeah but but it it does need a collaborative approach and you maybe need to say as a couple work out what your budget is like how much play money can you put on this thing But before you go all in, I would have your business plan stress tested. I would have 10,000 ways with a spreadsheet to make sure that you have thought of every eventuality and make sure that you think you can work out where is your break-even point. Mm. Test it, test it, test it, test it. You hit that date. Are you going to go or are you going to stay? If you're $1,000 from break-even, do you want to just give it another month? But do that collaboratively so that you're not, I wouldn't lie to your partner mm-hmm. <laughs> or say, you know, I've bought a new car, it's on its way. Yeah. You know, I'd, I'd actually um, do it together. Yeah. You know, you mentioned before talking about checking out your competition and that's, and that's also a really important part of doing the business plan and knowing the market that you're in. Something I've always struggled with is you think of an innovative idea to pursue and then you think, well, then you Google it and someone's already done it. You're like, what's your take on competition? If, if you come up, when you think of the idea generation, then you think, well, this would be an amazing thing to do. And then you, go, oh, well, then you find out someone's already done it. Is it still worth pursuing, do you think? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, skincare would have to be the most crowded market in the world. So, yeah, I mean, there's totally, it's a double-edged sword because in some ways you want an established market so that you can go out and just sell your product or service. You don't want to have to justify the whole market. You don't want to have to just be, you know, trying to create the market as well as selling your product. Mm. So it's it's fine. It's sometimes easier to go into an established uh, trade-off. I think what you need to think about with any product or service is what is your path to market? So you need to have a very, very clear business plan before you start. So when we looked at skincare, there was pharmacy, there were supermarkets, there was um, department stores, things like David Jones. And we knew when we started this business, I had um, done some work for Thank You, which is, I don't know if you know Thank You Soaps. and um, yeah, yeah, I do. It's, yeah, so it's a social enterprise. It raises money for a whole range of amazing programs around the world, in the Pacific, Africa. And so I did some 
because I did so much work with uh, Thank You Baby and I could see what happens at supermarket level. It is such a difficult space to be in and you need to have really pants of steel to deal in the FMCG space that that was something that we knew we didn't want to do. So for example, I think that the vagina and the vulva is a very underserved um, area in terms of products. I think what's out there is absolutely dreadful. I can really see a market for good vaginal uh, health products that are evidence-based and will not actually disrupt the microbiome of the vagina. The problem is that the competition is in a very low margin space. And so you'd have to be an FMCG and that just means you're going to have to deal with supermarkets and that's just a car crash. Mm. But it, when we're back to skincare, the other option was an MLM, multi-level marketing. Again, just unethical. We would never have gone into an MLM. They were selling through doctors and clinics, which we decided we would do and we still do with both ESK and the private label and then online. With the online, you need to understand the metrics you're gonna um, need to bring to the table. So they're often, as I said, generally about 30% of your revenue. It's not your profit, your revenue will need to go towards marketing and PR. And that is, you need to have very high levels of revenue indeed to be able to compete in a space mm. that big. So it's not just about the competition, it's your path to market. And you need a very strong business plan to work out how you're gonna make your product or service work within that market. Some pretty actionable ideas there in, in relation to competition and getting known. I think that's pretty sound about the 30% revenue. I've, I've seen that come in different industries and different business models and that's, mm-hmm. that's pretty fair. Mm-hmm. You know, if I think about then to like, again, that, that idea generation side, like a lot of people have hobbies and, and everyone kind of thinks, oh, if I could be doing this full time, then I'd be loving life. And I had a friend last week, like only last week, she really loves cooking and she's thinking she could start up some cooking videos online. And now she's trying to work out whether there's a business model in that and whether she can make some money in doing that. How do you go about that kind of thing of taking something that you enjoy and turning it into a business idea? And what are your thoughts around that in general? I wouldn't do it. <laughs> So I keep hearing, I get, go to conferences all the time, people say, let your, make your passion your uh, business and you'll be happy every day of your life. I would argue that anyone who's ever founded a business knows that it takes over you and consumes you 24-7 and then it just, all you've got is now a business that consumes you and no hobby because you've now lost your hobby because it's the thing that you absolutely resent. If there's something that gives you joy, whether it's yoga or cooking or singing, I would take that thing, I would ring fence it, I would still reinforce it and keep it as your hobby so that at least you have a break um, from your day job, which is really, really important. In terms of, you know, how do you you know, convert, you've got to think about what you want this business to do. So if you're um, sitting in a job that makes you $40,000 after tax, then you don't, and you just want to exchange like for like, then you can probably do something pretty well with as a yoga teacher or a a cycling repair person or um, a, a chef, good luck with, with that. But, you know, or on InstaChef, there's a lot there's a lot of competition there. But it just depends on whether you want to have a business that is actually goes on your balance sheet as having value and something that you maybe can contribute to your children and, and ultimately that's going to be a very different proposition and I wouldn't be looking at cooking videos. That. <laughs> that is that is a crowded market and then you've got like the side hustle people so say someone has like the, the yoga instructor or something like that that's that is doing something on the side making some money and that's and that's all great they might decide to do it as a living and turn it into that then becomes the main focus and then some people have done that successfully so say that you know that they've they've got that revenue coming in a little bit more and they're kind of making that decision about whether they like, like they invest more into it and they say, hey, I could do this on mass or do this in like a, you know, consultative way or something like, you know, and have courses that people attend and all that kind of stuff. You know, like is there's, but there's also something to say about having like a stable job and then also having the the side thing as well to kind of hedge your bets. So there's, there's that train of thought of just double down and hustle harder and then that becomes your thing or then you kind of keep broad and see how you go. A lot of people kind of struggle with that because they get stuck and they're like, well, I'll just keep, you know, staying where I am. And some people just want, want either to be told what to do or, or speak to someone about what, what they should do. Do you have any thoughts around that particular challenge? So in our case, I kept working full time to keep the lights on. Daniel ran the business and then every night now and then a an opportunity would fall into his lap where 
there'd be a contracting job and he'd just take it to earn a bit of money and then just pedal like crazy at nights and on weekends and I'd take over some of the, the business stuff um, until it just got to the point where he just needed to be there full time and then we needed more and more staff. I think it becomes fairly obvious when you can't do both anymore. But it does, if you are a single person with a family, so if you're a single parent, that is tough um, mm. because you've got nobody to share the decision making with and nobody to share the income generation with. And most businesses are not going to generate a profit for some time into the future. Or they do, but you've got to reinvest 100% of your profits straight back into the business because otherwise it'll never grow. So um, it's just easier if you have a partner not impossible totally. on your own but it's just easier a problem shared is a problem halved isn't that the thing probably uh, yeah yeah definitely i'm just going to take a quick second to post another poll too which i noticed that wasn't put up earlier it could have gone up earlier but it's also helpful now so the question to everyone that's that's attending do you think your employment status will be impacted by covid19 the answers are, to, are either it already has yes or no or it's hard to tell that hard to tell is a very easy cop-out answer, but I'll, I'll leave that there for people to choose already. It's becoming, but I guess that's, it's, I guess it's just what the nature of the current environment is already. That's becoming the majority answer. Some people are saying it already has been impacted. Some people are saying, oh, it might not, but that's a bit of a minority at the moment. Answers are still coming in. Most people are saying it's going to be hard to tell whether their, their employment status will be impacted by COVID-19. While people are answering that, I'll just remind too that you can put a question in the questions area there too. And we've got some time at the end of this to answer some of those. And if we don't get to any of those questions, we can answer via chat a bit later, which is beneficial to those that have attended live. Those on the podcast will try and read out as we go. So just to jump back into it, Ginny, the, you know, start thinking about money and like we've talked a little bit about the the side job and then there, but there's other people with aspirations of doing something big, you know, they've, they, they need a, a fair bit of capital. You mentioned that that was kind of one of your requirements or your non-negotiables, I guess, of being like a low capital intensive business to get started. Some people have some amazing ideas that just need a couple of million dollars to start or, or you know, a couple of hundred thousand dollars to start and they don't have any kind of assets to back it up against. So they just need a really good pitch deck. So uh, well, they don't just need that. But you know, like, so when it comes to raising money, you know, because the, the pathway normally is to bootstrap it and try and get something there, or do you just put all your savings into it? Do you do you raise capital? Do you take a loan? Do you offer equity and get people to help out? There's so many options out there about raising money, and we've all seen Shark Tank, but that's that's probably, <laughs> I guess that's one one avenue. But there's many other ways. What's what's your take on something like that? Well, I think if you're going to go to the bank and go, hey, bank, I've got this great idea, um, don't do that. There's just really no point. If you have a big undrawn facility in your house and you're happy to draw that down, good on you. That's one option that you have and you don't have to think about anybody else controlling you and demanding anything of you. I remember I really like the podcast, How I Built This, with Guy Raz on National Public Radio in the States. I don't know if you've ever listened to it. So it's all these stories of entrepreneurs who've... Um, started amazing businesses. So here's the story in case I can tell you how they all start and how they all end. Basically, person X goes to Harvard Business School where they meet another genius from business, Harvard Business School and then they come up with an idea and then they go and sell that to one of the million high net worth PE firms that they met through Harvard Business School and then the first funding round is about $100 million or maybe it's $300 million. And then the second funding round is about the same and that's about a year later and now they're worth however many billion dollars. So good luck to them. Back in the real world here in Australia, if you can't go to Harvard Business School, we've got to look at something a little bit different. So I think listing is not really for, for most of us mere mortals. The listing fees are incredibly hefty in Australia and it's not just as a one-off listing fee, it's as um, ongoing um, fees to, ASIC, uh, to the ASX, so um, probably not going to list. If, you go to, if you're going to go to private equity, uh, private equity wants, well, they're going to pay um, you in terms of multiples of your EBITDA. So everyone knows what EBITDA is, right? So they're going to pay you in multiples of your EBITDA. And, you know, if you're really lucky, they'll pay you quite a nice multiple of your EBITDA, but you need to have EBITDA. Um, and if you don't have that, private equity is not going to want to touch you. And the less successful your business, the lower that multiple is going to be. So I wouldn't look at private equity until you are reasonably well established with a pretty good profit 
to, to look at and a pretty good position in the market that they're going to pay um, for. So the who's that? The Shark Tank model, they're mainly angel investors. So I'm sure everyone's heard of angel investors, but they're basically usually high net worth individuals who've got money to play around with. They're quite happy to take quite a bit of risk and they will take a stake in your business. So, and all you need to do is Google, how do I find an angel investor? And you'll find quite a few of them around and there are clubs of angel investors and they, you present to them. I would not turn up to them and say, hi, Mr. Angel, Mrs. Angel Investor. I think I've got this great idea and it's to be a, I'm gonna do cooking videos on YouTube. I would not do that. I would have a very well-researched, stress-tested uh, spreadsheet of a business case. I'd have dates for when you become profitable, what exactly the costs are, what you're gonna do with the money you're asking them for, why you're asking for the amount that you're asking, and I would have a very solid business plan in place before you go to an angel investor, because otherwise you'll find it extremely demoralizing and very difficult. I know none of those are fabulous, but I think the one good thing about having a, an investor in your business is that they demand quite rigorous reports of you. And if you think an angel investor is gonna go, oh yeah, here is $2 million, see you in two years, let me know how you go, that is not what they're gonna do. They're gonna ask you um, to come in with, to justify every dot on the on the expense line of your PL. They're gonna ask you all about your revenue, where it's going, what you're gonna invest in next, how you're, how you're choosing, how you're deciding which stream you go to next. And so the good thing about having to prepare those reports is that you need to be inside your business and understand every bit of your business which arms are profitable, um, which are unprofitable, which people are profitable, which, how is your business traveling? And having to provide those, they're like board papers, board reports, is actually very helpful for you to understand whether the decisions you're making as a business owner are actually good decisions or, or not so good decisions. So, and we're all gonna make not so good decisions, but the idea when you're small and you're the founder in charge, is just to be agile and to be able to pivot away from things that are not doing as well and to redirect some of your capital elsewhere or some of your some of your profits you can direct them into a different hire into a different space we've had many experiences like that we fell into customer service it was a, a very strange thing um, a friend of ours who's a consultant management consultant said where are people coming to ESK from what was the previous brand they were with so that you know how to target in terms of marketing so we, we hired one person to do just phone calls and find out, you know, what they were, had been using previously. But in the process, she'd say, hi, how are you? How are you finding it? Do you want to tell us anything? And it turns out that when we looked at social media, everybody was talking about how fantastic this girl was and how she'd really helped them and fixed a lot of their problems. And so she started hiring a team and training them up. And now that's a really core part of our brand. We call everybody about two weeks after they take delivery of their products because it's mainly mm -hmm. online. We ask them how they're going, if there are any issues. We have a 100% money back guarantee and uh, no questions asked. And we try and tweak the products for them. And having a very high degree of customer service has ended up being a core part of our business um, and part of our USP actually that we had not been planned. It was something that we fell into, but we were agile enough to be able to quickly pivot there and hire more into that space and take away maybe from some of the, the marketing and, and graphics kind of space that was not as, we didn't think it was generating as much revenue. Hmm. It's interesting finding out what those things are that actually add value to the business and that something that starts as being for one particular purpose ends up being like a core part of the business. I, I love when you, you discover those types of things. Something as well, when you're a founder or have a great idea and you're passionate and you've followed something through from the start and you're, you're the subject matter expert, but then someone who's put in a lot of money or you know the majority of the money for your business then tells you either you're not charging enough or you should, hey, you should be focusing on this because you know my other ones in my portfolio do this or you should do this that can be challenging when you know your business you know your market especially if like no by I'm, I'm going to guess a lot of the attendees here are in the healthcare kind of space like healthcare is harder slower to sell it depends who you're you know selling to but generally it's just a tough slog so so managing that that investor relationships is pretty challenging too no doubt definitely it's look i guess you need to understand who you're taking on board as an investor and you need to make sure that you're comfortable with that relationship and understand what they're looking to do. Because in PE world, they're looking to 
buff and polish you and flick you. That's what they've got a five-year exit strategy and that's what they're looking to do. So they've got to extract, ring out as much uh, value out of you, uh, often by cutting your costs, getting rid of your staff that you love. You know, when you're in a small company, those first few mm. hires, they're like family to you. You don't want to get rid of any of them, um, but that's what they'll do. And you need to understand that and not be surprised when that's what happens. And even angel investors will want to do uh, that to a certain extent as well. And in fact, a lot of them like to be very hands-on and that's why they invest their hard-earned. So in our case, we have been able to use Aurora Care to generate capital that we put into ESK and now ESK just returns its own capital. That means that, you know, our private jet is on hold, you know, um, because we just keep <laughs> reinvesting, reinvesting, reinvesting. But yeah. it does mean that we have not had to negotiate with an investor who wants to bust our balls about anything. But hmm. founders can actually be a bit stick in the mud too. And you, it, because it's your baby and you gave birth to it and you're originally, I mean, Daniel was originally the cleaner, the lawyer, you know, he did all the pack and sending himself, you know, he did even some of the graphics, you know, we'd pay for, to get graphic design done and then he'd use, you know, Adobe and actually workshop them into into labels because we couldn't afford to get the full suite and you know he was yeah. the cleaner the office cleaner and the toilet cleaner when you've done all of that you can be quite defensive of your position and it's very important to have other people around you that you can trust who then feel safe to say we've got to do x and you're going to be agile and you're going to be able to pivot because if you don't you can miss amazing opportunities totally thank you i can see a few people have put some questions through which will which we can jump into now i can see anna asks firstly hi peter and Ginny. i've been thinking of launching a side hustle biz in the business in the mindset life coaching space so like do you think this is the right time given the current climate what do you think Gina? i think the Yes, I think the awareness around mindfulness is just huge and I think everybody wants it. And I think that it's a, COVID has really started actually a lot of awareness around how much mental health um, impacts there will be from this, both from people working at home, the stress in relationships, finding out that you there's a reason why teachers are teachers and we're not. That's, you know, pretty important. Uh, so I think the, the need is definitely there. And I guess it all depends on whether you just want to replace a job that pays X amount of money to working for yourself can definitely be far more tax effective and you can definitely end up with the same amount of money for maybe less work, but you need to be able to sell your services. And a lot of us feel uncomfortable, particularly women, selling ourselves and saying, I could do this really well, I can do this better than anything that that you've so far been looking into. So you know, steal up, you've got this. If you're looking into this, you must be good at it and you can add so much value and not only make some money doing something that you're happy um, doing, but also really make a difference to a lot of people's lives. And that is just so beautiful to be able to do that and will make you feel really good about yourself. I don't know how you scale a mindfulness business. I think that's a little bit more difficult to of turn it into an asset that you then give to your children but it's um, a lovely way to live so yeah I think go for it Anna. Nice one thanks Jeannie and I can see as well Phoebe's asked how would you best validate a health tech startup would you trial the product at full tech development or ask GPs to trial a paper-based idea of the product before investing in development I think it's a good one to, to ask for yourself as well Ginny who whilst, I mean, you're, you're pretty technically savvy. You worked out how to get into this webinar before I did, but like in the GP space, you're the, you're the end user often of a, of a piece of tech software. What's your kind of thought? So I um, actually run as well a small consulting business um, in primary care engagement because I think you'll find, Phoebe, that getting GPs to trial your software is difficult because they are so busy and they would want to understand what was in it for them to take on this extra bit of software. And the other thing is that with tech software, as you know, there are a couple of software companies that sit inside a GP's browser who are very defensive of their territory and they kind of control the market because the GPs are obligate users of this software. And so ideally, if you can make your product a bolt-on uh, to one of the existing software platforms for GPs, that's awesome. And then, you, of course, you're going to get lots of trials, but that costs a lot of money because they are um, market leaders. I think you've just got to work out if you're going to trial it for GPs, what's in it for the GP and why are they going to do that when it takes so much time? So 
So whether that's for some sort of monetary reward and general practice is being hammered at the moment and GPs are not only miserable, but they're also looking to earn more revenue because they're earning less than teachers at the moment. So whether it's that or whether you you have a look at what your software is and look for people with that particular interest. So let's say it was something in the skin space and that you could then suggest to your to those particular GPs who are interested in skin that they might have a first to market advantage by using this particular software and that might give them a USP in the skincare market or the skin cancer market, then that would be an incentive. So have a look at that from a sales perspective and talk to as many GPs as you can to say what would make you use this or not use this in a, in a trial uh, space. Hope that helps, Phoebe. Nice one. Thank you. Hey, look, um, starting to round things out, Ginny, thinking about staff. So if you start scaling up your business and you start needing some people and you need a team to support you, you mentioned you just hired your 10th employee or your 10th yeah. employee started congratulations on that by the way you know managing staff's hard though you know i I used to say tongue-in-cheek that running a business would be heaps easier if it wasn't for money and staff but as a founder usually you're the one that's like you say you're you're doing everything you're 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 cleaning you're also managing people you're doing up their contracts you're doing managing all the the soft skill stuff like having an employee just start and then just do stuff that is not what they do you know people are people and they you know have concerns that need to be trained but then they have concerns about it or then they have something comes up you know their family member over in perth has you know needs support for three months and then you need to be able to adapt but they're really good all these things like there's no real there's a process that exists high level but sometimes you just need to speak and work it out and those things take time how did you so not to get overwhelmed with that kind of piece but just to start in terms of bringing staff on I think that's probably more the addressable question right here the process of hiring finding the right people and things to keep in mind when you're bringing on staff what are some things that come to mind for you so I I like to think about our first full-time employee Dana and so when I met Dana she was a receptionist in my surgery and whenever I would come into work and I would see that Dana was at the front desk I would know that for sure I was not going to get stupid interruptions with things that calls that I did not need to take she would sort stuff out for me and more importantly all the patients would come in and go oh Dana's on today I love Dana so Dana was 20 she was thinking about going to university she's a smart cookie and she could have gone to university and what she was planning to do was um, psychology which would have been five years with a compulsory master's and she's I just thought she's too smart for that so I rang her one day and I said I want to poach you to come and work for me I'm going to have to get you to put your your plans to go to uni on hold indefinitely but you're going to work for a startup which means that you get in on the ground up you're going to see every single part of the way a sausage is built. And in this day and age, that is really, really valuable experience. You're gonna be customer facing, you're gonna be B2B, you're gonna be B2C, um, you're gonna be, we've got to onboard a whole lot of um, software because you know, running every business is all about the software and what's compatible with Xero or whatever else, whichever other software you're using and how to you know, liaise with courier companies and all the rest of it. And you're gonna work for us. and I'm going to talk to you every single day. And mm. she just said, yes. She didn't wait to hear the salary. She just said, yes, I wow. I want to work for you. We have never been overly focused on, on resumes and we're not overly focused on um, experience because smart people learn stuff quickly. What we wanted is somebody who is smart, lovely, ideally, nice to have in our office we have quite a small office not at the moment with COVID where everyone's working from home but we have normally a very uh, small office with um, lots of people who need to interact with each other and get on really well together. Dana has been really integral in choosing her team and so she's gone on to head up the customer service team and she's chosen her team but then she was integral in onboarding a whole lot of the other people because we all needed to know that everybody got on really well. Right now in COVID, we have staff meetings morning and night. So we start the day and finish the day with a staff meeting. And on Mondays, Wednesdays and Friday, we have yoga. So we have got the ESK yoga coach um, that we've employed um, just to do a yoga class just for our um, employees so that 
we can bond over a yoga class and hopefully good for some stress management and sometimes the kids the little kids sort of come in and do it as well but it's a nice way to to stay connected while we're not physically in the office together and you know for us it's all about finding the right person the right personality mm, mm, totally hey look just lastly then to finish things off Ginny, what, what what's going to be your focus or how are you thinking about Outlook over the next three, six, 12 months for yourself, your business and what? So with any business plan, you're looking at the next, um, so we're still in a growth phase and there's not endless amounts of money. So we've got to, I guess, uh, choose which where we deploy our capital next and deploy our cash next. So we've got a number of projects that we're running simultaneously, but launching in the US requires quite a lot of money. So there's always your regulatory approval, which we're running simultaneously in a number of, we're getting regulatory approval in a whole range of jurisdictions because we're cosmeceutical. And so we're having to do that. Choosing um, which market we enter and how we enter um, each market is is really interesting. We launch a new website. Oh my goodness, whatever time you think it's going to take to uh, launch a new website, it takes longer. But the speeds are what it's all about now. And for SEO, you need very fast page load speed. So if you're about to launch your own website, spend more on your website because that will delay you having to do a new one sooner. So uh, we've wanted a whole lot of things embedded in our website, but that will be relaunched, I believe, in two weeks. Fingers crossed. But yeah, so I guess uh, new markets would be uh, the biggest one. And then continue, you know, at the moment, despite COVID, which we thought would probably, um, we had to have like emergency meetings. We thought it was going to shut us down. In fact, we've had quite amazing month on month revenue growth, which has freed up quite a bit of money to put into annex growth phase, which is fantastic. Amazing. Look, there's a lot of stuff to, to, to watch as you kind of continue to grow that business and everything else that you do um, outside of that as well, Ginny. So thank you for sharing some of those stories and answering those questions that came through. If it's okay, we'll, we'll stay online for a minute or two and answer any other questions that come up via chat for people. So please do type a question in if you've got that and we'll do that via text. Um, You will be able to check out this episode on the Talking Health Tech podcast in about two weeks. It'll be on audio, viral, good podcast, medium thingamajigs. So check that out. Um, Ginny, all the best. Thank you so much. And um, thank you. Thanks for having me. No worries. And thanks for everyone who came along. Thanks for listening to Talking Health Tech. My name is Peter Birch. Go check out the website, contribute to the forum, listen to other episodes and get in touch with feedback about the show because collaboration starts with a conversation. Speak to you next time.